Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the videocast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. And on today's episode, I have a very special uh, guest. He's actually a really good friend of mine from Vancouver, BC, Canada. We did several events together. We're both part of a great community called the British Columbia Association of Travel Writers. And we love uh, talking travel. And now I have the opportunity to interview Henry. Um, I've actually interviewed him uh, already on a whole different subject matter about his blog. And on this episode, I'm going to be interviewing him about his travels. Uh, so Henry is a prolific traveler. He actually took one year off, and he traveled for 389 days continuously. Uh, so we'll be finding out about that travel journey. He's also really a strong photographer. That's one of his big passions. So we'll be getting some tips and insights into how to take great pictures. And he's a Germanophile. I don't know if that's a real word, but he's, a, he's a German lover. And uh, he, he's a really big advocate of travel to Germany. And for those of you to Germany, you'll get some great insights into where to go, what to see, what to do, etc. So, uh, Henry, uh, to start off with, why don't we hear a little bit about your background? Tell us about yourself and uh, what got you so passionate about travel. Well, first of all, thank you, Ricky, for having me on your podcast. It's a great pleasure to be able to speak to you and to your audience today. Um, I was born and raised in Vancouver, and uh, I started off with a great affinity for science, and I went to university and did degrees in physics and then subsequently into astronomy. Uh, I became a research astronomer um, for almost two decades, um, and I ended up uh, in a number of different countries uh, after my various degrees. Um, and because of my work in research, I got to live in Germany, got to live in the United States, and then I got to live in Chile. Towards the end of my time, it was clear that my time in astronomy was coming to an end for various reasons. Part of it was research, part of it was my interests were going in different directions. My life was going in a different direction. And at the end of 2011, I left Chile and I also left astronomy as a career, and as you mentioned, I traveled around the world. Um, I recognized I had an opportunity to do so because I was going to leave both Chile and leave astronomy, and I had to think about what I wanted to do. Do I want to go into uh, the work world immediately uh, after having spent so much time studying and being an academic and whatnot? I decided I did not want to do that, and I had the opportunity to travel for a year. Um, predicated primarily by my own personal interest in specific areas, um, but also because of the various people that I had met along the way doing research said, when they found out I was going to travel around the world, they said to me, if you don't visit us during your year, we will disown you as friends. So I said, well, who am I to say? So I have to visit you. And so. Um, I was very thankful that I got to stay with uh, a bunch of, of my friends along the way, particularly in Australia. Um, so that was fantastic as well. Um, after traveling around the world, I eventually came back to Vancouver. Uh, I made the choice to come back to Vancouver because I also recognized I was at a point in my life where with my own age and with my parents' age, I had to make a decision about a place I wanted to be. And in truth, even though Vancouver is my birth city and, and it's a great city to be in, it's not actually my first choice to, of cities to be in. And that's one of the curses, blessing and curses of traveling so much because you get to see different places and you, you learn that part of yourself. You go, huh, I like that. I could see myself living here or living there. It doesn't necessarily have to be Vancouver. And other people who have come to Vancouver have discovered that about Vancouver. And so I've made those discoveries at different places. In any case, I came back to Vancouver to keep an eye out on my parents, and that's where I am at now. And that's, in a nutshell, um, the summary of my life. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And you know, it's very hard to summarize the entire life into a couple of minutes. So good job there. Uh, you know, Henry, I, I commend you uh, for going back to Vancouver for the sake of your parents. Uh, you know, as an Indian, I know you're Chinese and we have strong uh, ethnic cultures and um, belief systems that we need to take care of our parents the same way our parents took care of us. And uh, you know, uh, luckily, my parents are both healthy 
Uh, my mom's in her 60s. My dad's in his, his 70s. So I know at some point I might have to return to Vancouver and do what you're doing. So yeah, I really want to give you a thumbs up uh, there for what you're doing. It Thank is a you. sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. As a side note, uh, I, I totally agree with you. You're, you're absolutely right. Sacrifice. I just want to make a side note that had I had this question been addressed to me five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I might have been much more negative in my response. So the upshot is that I arrived at a certain point in my life. All the things that came before me led me to a certain point in my life and all these different factors that converge to the point where, huh, okay, what am I going to do next? Oh, I have my parents. And I'm now out of research. I've just traveled the world. Should I move to a completely different country again or should I come back? And again, various factors have, have uh, come into play. And when these questions came up, I said, yeah, I'm, I, I really should do this. And uh, I've made the decision to do so. But as you said, it is a sacrifice and it requires, um, it puts new meaning to the, and, and two meaning, true, different meanings, excuse me, to the words uh, commitment and obligation. Uh, because I don't have my own family, um, those have very different meanings now because I have, I'm keeping an eye out on of my parents. And it's very true of everybody, eventually you become. Uh, parents to your own parents. Uh, again, you know, knock on wood. All all of your parents, if, are they, if they're still around, you can watch them grow old. And and when they, as you watch them grow old, you're going to have to keep eye, an eye on them in whatever way you're comfortable with. And so I decided to to um, act in my own way and um, take care and keep an eye on my parents and the way I see fit. So. Yeah, and you, you know, uh, on, the, on these interviews, we've been finding out that uh, people have barriers to travel. Uh, one of them is the money barrier. They just don't have the money. One is the time barrier. Uh, they just can't get time to travel enough uh, because of work or other commitments. Uh, the third is the kid factor. Uh, when uh, kids are young or if they're in school, very hard to take them out. Uh, the others, the fourth uh, is the health factor. Someone uh, might be um, in a health issue that they can't travel. It could be allergies. It could be and then, um, you know, the other thing is about the aging parents. Um, because uh, if you are the primary caregiver of your parents, uh, unless you just want to throw them in a nursing home, which unfortunately happens to a lot of parents, um, you know, you pretty much are the caretaker of them. So tell us about the emotions. I mean, I, I don't want to harp on this issue too much, but at the same time, I do want to address it because a lot of our listeners and viewers are probably in the very same boat uh, and they're wondering, what do I do? I have my parents, should I put them in a nursing home? Uh, maybe there's other siblings involved, so the other sibling can take care of them, then I can travel. So uh, I understand there's obviously a lot of variables here, uh, the mental variable, the emotional variable, the financial variable, the geographic variable, um, the fact uh, if you're the oldest sibling, the younger sibling, uh, and a whole bunch of others. These are just kind of uh, some of the factors. So tell us about, um, especially the, emotions uh, that you have to deal with uh, because if you say sacrifice that means um, it is probably hard emotionally mentally physically psychologically so tell us about that walk us through how you're dealing with that that's a great question uh, I think also just to first to address your question is that I think everybody has their own different set of circumstances where they are with their parents in terms of the relationship with their parents their economic background their economic situation uh, where they are in their lives at the time where if they're going to be asked this question take care of their parents all sorts of different factors different cultural backgrounds as well we do share similar emotions and that's why it's an excellent question I recognized it was a sacrifice and I prepared myself trying to prepare myself mentally about the challenges that I would have to face. Um, and in truth, sometimes I do feel stuck in the city. And I think that's a natural uh, consequence of doing, of, of having made the decision. It's not a bad thing or, or, or it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just, a, I think, a consequence, like I said. Um, it's also a consequence of the fact that I've been able to live in different places and you know, perhaps it's part of 
of seeing how how much the grass is greener on the other side of the street. I mean, that's a very common saying, and it's also also true for people who have or uh, left the city or left the province and lived elsewhere because they've had to learn to adapt to different things elsewhere and they've learned to get the most out, uh, positive out of their different uh, uh, environments. And so having said that, because I came back to my home city where I was born and raised, uh, even though I'd left, um, been away from the city for 20 years, coming back was, for the first year was very strange. And despite the fact that I'd been coming back regularly over those 20 years while I was away, uh, coming here, excuse me, coming back here for good was strange in the respect that Everything seemed familiar, and everything was completely unfamiliar. We had, of course, moved on in those 20 years. I did not expect the city to stay the same, of course, when I left in 1994. That's impossible. Um, but that mental shift has to occur, and it's important to give yourself that time to adapt because you can't just go make that switch. Uh, as human beings, we're, we're not really built that way. Um, I. I think some people can do it, but I know that I can't just turn on and switch and say, okay, let's just do that. Uh, I had to give myself some time to do so. So in terms of the emotions, um, I was happy to be back because I reestablished a, a very different kind of personal relationship with my parents. Um, I mean, of course, I'm always going to be their son. That never, that never is going to change. But as adults, Establishing a different kind of relationship as an adult was was a lot of fun to do. It was very interesting to do because I removed being away for twenty years also helped remove helped remove a lot of the baggage that I carried with me when I went abroad. Coming back, that baggage was left out, um, and that's something that I think is very important to do because you can't bring that baggage with you. Because you're going to deal enough of the baggage from your parents. And so it's enough to deal with your own baggage, let alone your parents' bag, emotional baggage as well. So for me, uh, making that conscious decision allowed me to handle whatever past emotional baggage my parents might have brought to the table. And that didn't certainly occur. But it was a lot easier to deal with because I said I was going to approach my parents as two adults, yes, I've known them all my lives, but then I'm going to approach them in a different way, um, understanding, patience, perseverance, whatever, all these things. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to go through all these emotions as well. I totally expect that. Um, so there's that. So I think a lot of it was a mental challenge. The emotional challenges as I tried to try to loot, was something that I uh, expected. Again, happy to be back, happy to see my parents. Um, sometimes I was frustrated because uh, things weren't going the way I thought they were going to go. Um, you always ask yourself the question: Could my own set of circumstances, you know, with respect to my writing and photography, be better if I'm not in Vancouver? Who knows? Um, the fact is, I've made the choice to be here, and I'm standing by that choice. So, um, so that's where the frustration comes in. Sad because you know I watched my dad die. I watched my dad die of, of cancer, and that's not something that uh, that's it's it's a, it's a sad situation, and and uh, one hopes that. Nobody else has to go through the situation, but everybody will have to go through the situation at some point. Um, but I think the most important part that I learned for me, and that I hope my dad appreciate, appreciated, excuse me, and that I think that my mom appreciates now, is that just be there. Just be present. That's all it is. You don't have to say a thing. Um, you don't have. You don't actually have to do anything particularly special. That helps, of course. Whatever it is that your parents like, do that for them. But be present. Um, be there. Um, hold their hand. Listen. Um, that 
for me was uh, one of the most important things that I've had to learn and, and one of the best things that I've uh, had to experience uh, having come back to Vancouver. So long story short, Ricky, uh, you ex I've experienced all sorts of different emotions uh, along the way. Uh, it's helped somewhat that I, just following what other people have experienced, I try to kind of prepare myself a little bit mentally. The kinds of situations, the kinds of emotions that I was going to experience along the way. Having said that, every, every day is a new day, um, and sometimes uh, things happen along the way. So that's just life. You know, life uh, means that something new is going to happen every day as well, as well as the, as well as the same kind of routines that you're going to experience, whether you're at home with your kids, whether at work, or whether it's in my case, uh, being back in the city of my birth, keeping an eye on my parents. And thank you for sharing so openly and vulnerably about the difficulties because uh, you're not alone. I, I, I think uh, that's something uh, uh, exactly. from what you've shared. You are not alone because I've uh, talked to a whole bunch of other people and uh, most people don't talk about this. I mean, it's not typically something we talk about over Starbucks coffee. Uh, usually we talk about um, hockey or basketball or baseball, the sports, the weather, uh, maybe politics, Donald Trump, uh, Justin Trudeau, Christy Clark, etc. But But the real issues of life are these issues. Um, and uh, you brought up things like the emotional baggage and, um, you know, like the frustrations, the insecurities, etc. So, Thanks for sharing. And uh, you know, people listening and viewing, if you want to reach out to someone like Henry who's dealing with it, it, it really helps just to know that you're not alone. And I really want to emphasize that. You are not alone who's listening and watching. Uh, so Henry, uh, you, yeah, you are back in Vancouver and um, you, you've done this amazing one-year trip uh, and now you still do a lot of traveling. I mean, uh, you mentioned pre-interview that you do uh, uh, at least a couple of trips to Germany. I know you're a big fan of that, but tell us about uh, uh, some of the travels you've done since returning to Vancouver after your big epic one-year adventure. I was very uh, fortunate to get in touch with a number of people here in British Columbia uh, through the meets that we've had here in Vancouver and other meets as well. Um, first of all, coming back here, I wanted to also approach um, looking at my time a little bit more favorably by having the chance or getting the opportunity to go back to places where I'd seen when I was a kid or even go to areas that I had been before. I mean, as you know, British Columbia is a very big place. Um, there are vast parts of the province that I'll probably not see, but I mean, it's going to be fun trying, absolutely, let alone the, the world at large. Um, so, for example, um, hopping on a seaplane to Comox for the seafood festival, that was a couple of years ago, was a big thrill. I had not been on a seaplane, or if I had, it would have been a very, very, very long time ago. So as an adult, um, getting to go on a seaplane um, and going to the seafood festival over in Comox was uh, was a lot of fun. I hadn't been to Comox in probably 20 years. Um, they used to have, I don't know if they have an uh, uh, air festival. Um, they probably do, because I know about CFB Comox. Uh, but anyway, uh, going back there was, was a lot of fun. It was also interesting talking to the people in the area about um, the challenges of and actually, the wonderful aspects of living in the Comox Corny area. And I'd like to go back to that part of the island as well because it really is beautiful and it's really easy to travel around. There's a lot to do uh, using both Comox or Campbell River as a base. Uh, go fishing, go hiking, um, go driving. I mean, just to see Vancouver Island. Um, uh, so that is that aspect. Um, I mentioned in the pre-interview that I've been going to Seattle a little bit more often. Um, I've been going to Seattle off and on with my parents as you know as part of family trips way back when. So going back to Seattle uh, for not not quite extended period, but two to three days at a time just to see different parts of the city uh, has been a lot of fun. Um, to not only rediscover Seattle, but as a very large city, 
population to Vancouver. It's uh, really interesting, you know, to compare and contrast those two cities, um, how they've developed roughly over diff uh, similar time periods. Seattle is older, uh, not by much, but it's older. Um, they have major of uh, more major sports teams than Vancouver. We Vancouver is dominated by hockey, and Seattle is dominated by uh, two codes of football and baseball. Um, so it's really interesting to see how how those two cities develop. And so when I go to Seattle, I think about Seattle as an organic entity on its own, and then I compare that to how uh, Vancouver is like as a city. Um, I also mentioned that I was able to go to the Tulip Festival um, in Skagit County. It's about halfway between Vancouver, British Columbia and Seattle, Washington, so it's really easy to get to from either of those two cities uh, by car. Um, with a friend, we drove down to uh, Mount Vernon, hung out in the area. There's lots of little towns in the area in Skagit County that are really beautiful, quiet, uh, lovely, lovely people. Diners, cafes, bakeries, boutiques, little shops, just fantastic places just to hang out and you know not feel rushed and you're still in a beautiful part of the Pacific Northwest. Um, then going to the Tulip Festival was fantastic because even though the Tulip Festival has been around for a long time, it was my first, I know, I'm pretty sure it was my first visit to that Tulip Festival. I'd been to other Tulip Festivals before in Europe, but this was the first one here uh, in the area. And it was fantastic uh, to see tulips. And honestly, I'm also at a point in my life where I can finally appreciate when you have beautiful flowers and you can photograph beautiful flowers, that's certainly worth seeing and photographing as well. I might not have been able to appreciate that as much 20 years ago, but now, you know, it's all good. So I've been able to do that. And I'd like to go back to um Skagit County again it's just there's, there's a lot to do down there so just up and down I-5 between Vancouver British Columbia and Seattle Washington um, there's also sorts of different things to do up and down that I-5 corridor that I'm hoping to do more of uh, as well So uh, you're a big advocate of travel to Germany, and uh, you know you're not you're not the typical person who I think of would be a big a German fan. Uh, I don't want to stereotype too much here, but you're uh, Chinese Canadian, uh, born and raised in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Yet you are a Germanophile. I don't know if that's a, a proper word. Uh, not a Germanophile, a Germanophile. No, Germanophile. Yeah. There you go. That's the proper pronunciation. A Germanophile. So tell us about uh, why. Was it the cute girls? Was it the delicious food? Was it the amazing landscape? Was it the rich history? Or was it all of the above? Uh, what made you so passionate about Germany? It's all of the above, certainly. It's also helped by the fact, very simply, the first country uh, that I was very fortunate uh, to be able to live in outside of North America was Germany. So after getting my, my PhD um, in 2001, I got a research position in Heidelberg, Germany. And I basically flew out to Heidelberg, Germany, sight unseen. And all I knew were very few words in German, you know, hello, guten tag, uh, dankeschön, and auf wiedersehen. You know, the very simple things that you need to know um, in every language, uh, and certainly in German. Um, fortunately, I went to a university town where there are a lot of people from around the world. There's also a lot of academic institutions there. And it also helped that word uh, when I moved into my apartment in Heidelberg um, was bilingual. And in this part of Germany, or western part of Germany, and certainly in a part where, or in a city where there's lots of academics and a lot of students, a lot of the Germans there. Uh, their English is very, very good. Even if they're modest about their English, their English really is, in fact, very good. And so with my non-existent German, uh, having that kind of couch things or soften the blow uh, was, a, was a big help. I found that I really liked the country, really loved the country. There are a lot of similarities between uh, Germany and Canada, uh, social net, 
um, the way it functions, um, the way the interaction between society and the government, mod between modern German society and the modern German government. Um, I, make that, I make a distinction, it'll become clear why I make a distinction in a moment, but um, there were a lot of cute girls that I met there. Um, it's Europe, so I'm already predisposed to, to Europeans in the first place, so uh, that was a big, big help too. Uh, there's a lot of meat and potatoes in Germany, in that part of the world, and so a lot of people find that kind of heavy, but I don't mind that, so I had no problems with it. Um, I could spend a long time talking about, you know, fresh vegetables and fresh fruit and vegetables and, you know, that part of their diet, but I'm not going to bore you with that right now. The culture is changing, of course, like most European cultures, like a lot of European cultures. Um, their kids travel abroad and then they go home and so they bring the best when they go home and we do the same in Canada so it's no different that because it's done here in Canada it's also done in Western Europe as well um, I fell in love with the country uh, all these different things I spent two years in Heidelberg uh, I felt very comfortable there and basically since 2001 uh, after having lived there for two years I have gone back to Germany every year, at least once, sometimes twice, sometimes more, since 2003. So I have a consecutive streak going since that time. I have friends throughout the country, throughout the entire country. Every time I go back, I feel very much at home. Uh, sometimes, quite frankly, I feel a little bit more at home there than I do here, but that's just the way it is. Um, it's also very interesting that because I'm a Germanophile, and I'm visibly a member of a, a minority, both in Canada and also in Europe. When I start speaking German, I see the gears uh, turning in their heads. And that's, I mean, I don't try, I'm not playing people on people, but I'm having a serious conversation or I'm trying to be polite to people. You know, a very positive reaction. And so I use that as an introduction to the reasons why I like going to Germany, why I like going to different parts of Germany. I've seen the big cities in Germany. I'm now, in the past few years, starting to go into areas where tourists generally don't visit uh, or don't have in their mind to visit for various different reasons. Also, um, everybody knows about German stereotypes. When you ask a person what the first three things that come up in their minds when you ask them about Germany, it's typically three things. Fairy tale castles, that comes up big. Oktoberfest, that comes up big. Um, actually, four things. Uh, beer and sausage, that's the third thing. And the other thing is Nazis. And uh, the very dark, dark, dark history in the first half of the 20th century. And it's with that in mind, and with the current political climate in not only North America, but also the rise of the right, the rise of kind of internal nationalism, I view it as an important thing to go and look at the lessons, uh, things that occurred within the first two to three decades of Germany how Nazis, Nazism swept the country and swept people along with it. Those are the things that I want to learn and see if those things don't keep happening. Uh, I think the answer to that is yes. We've, I mean, we've seen um, people get slaughtered for the religion and for the their, their race or for their different tribes. We've seen that around the world. We've seen that in Asia. We've seen that in Africa. Uh, so we have this thing about killing people. Um, and in Germany, they happen to do it very, very well uh, over that time period. Okay? The circumstances that led up to, to the rise of Nazism uh, are well documented many, many authors, many, many books. Um, 
And yet sometimes we fail to heed those lessons because it seems so distant, despite the fact that it's only 50, 75 years. That's not a long time. It's only a few generations. So to be blunt, as a member of a visible minority, to have a love of Germany, to learn about those lessons, and also to recognize the fact that your, your audience will recognize that being part of Western society, we take a lot of things for granted. You may ask yourself, when you think about popular music, you think about whatever your favorite popular music is, but think about Bach, think about Beethoven, think about Mozart. Um, think about all of these composers that were at that time popular music and how those type of musical forms have led to the kinds of music that we view that's popular today. Think about the idea of living in your home. What we take for granted, your table, the chair, the windows next to the walls, all these things that are part of your home actually come about in large part to the Bauhaus culture that arose in Germany in the first two decades of the 20th century. You should look into that. Um, what we view as modern living comes from that. So a lot of a lot of things that we view, that we take for granted as part of Western culture, a lot of it comes from Europe, a lot of it comes from Italy, a lot of it comes from France, a lot of it comes from England, a lot of it also comes from Germany. So you can't dispel that. Uh, so you have to take the good with the bad, the things that I want to talk about, that I want to highlight as well. One of the things that I'm highlighting this year is that Germany is celebrating 500 years of the Lutheran Reformation. Um, and I'm not going to talk about, about uh, the Lutheran Reformation in great detail, but when somebody said, we're not happy with the way things are being done in the church at the time, the Catholic Church at the time, Let's think about doing it differently. It was not necessarily wrong to think about doing things differently. And of course, people in power said, no, you can't do that because we're in power and you can't do that because we say so. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? So that example of the Reformation as a form of protest, hence the word Protestants and Protestantism, uh, came about because the Catholic Church at the time, uh, a lot of people were not happy with the Catholic Church at the time, and so that came as a result of that. And so this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant movement, and so Germany is marking that throughout the country, throughout Eastern Germany, and I'm also marking that in my blog and various other um, um, venues like Instagram and Twitter. So th those are the reasons why I'm so uh, enthusiastic uh, about Germany and why I'm enthusiastic about um, educating people about Germany uh, as a parallel to uh, things that we can take in terms of, excuse me, what we can learn about how we can deal with the 21st century. You did a phenomenal job of really elaborating on some of the richness of German culture, uh, the music, the food, and the stereotypes. I mean, uh, like you said, a lot of people think of German, uh, Germany, oh, the Nazis, the Oktoberfest, uh, the sausages, the krauts, the Disneyland castles. A lot of people don't even know that the Disneyland castle was based in Neuschwanstein in, uh, in Germany. I had the pleasure of visiting Germany when I backpacked around Europe, and uh, yeah, definitely a beautiful country uh, with so much diversity. I went from Munich to Cologne, Dusseldorf, Bonn, um, up to like Hamburger, Dresden, and uh, yeah, such an awesome country, and I definitely know I need to explore it more. Um, and it's kind of ironic because uh, when we're traveling, um, me and my wife and kids, we've been traveling for seven months, and we meet Germans everywhere. Uh, just because Germans have one of the best holiday or vacation systems in the world, uh, because uh, for some reason, they're everywhere around the world traveling. Uh, and um, like we were in South Africa, the animal safari, full of Germans. We're in Brazil, even here in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm doing the interview from today. Uh, a lot of Germans, they come here and uh, um, they uh, stay in a lot of the upscale resorts. 
Um, so it's kind of funny that uh, I, I, I meet Germans all the time, and uh, they're great. They're great, a uh, bunch of people. We've had a few Germans on the show. I can think of uh, uh, Travel Dudes, uh, the founder of Travel Dudes, Melvin. Uh, he was uh, one of our guests as well, and he's from uh, Germany. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, a great country. Tell us about um, some of your favorite sightseeing attractions because you covered a lot of the cultural, uh, historical aspects of Germany, uh, which is amazing. But uh, I think uh, it would be great to hear about some of your favorite sightseeing and tourist uh, destinations too. Oh my goodness, where do I begin? Uh, let me first start with urban uh, settings because I grew up in Vancouver and I love uh, urban environments. Um, the five most populous Five largest cities in Germany by population, starting from the fifth um, low to high, are Frankfurt, Cologne, um, Munich, Hamburg, and then Berlin. Um, all five cities are very different cities. I love all five cities. Not everybody views them in the same way, but I love all five cities because, again, I've been so fortunate to be able to have been able to go to Germany a lot. And so I've been inside those five cities a lot. Um, um, Frankfurt's a good place to come to land in. It's a big hub city. Uh, there's money because it's also a lot of banking is done in Frankfurt. And that's kind of delightful in its own way. It's got very interesting food culture. Um, it's actually got a really good sports culture. Um, they're actually really good museums. And one of the things that comes naturally for a city that has a lot of money is that it also means that art is also very important. So for a visitor, their art museums, uh, it's not just art, but their variety of museums is very, very good. Um, so I like Frankfurt for that, for that reason. Um, Cologne is a very happy city. And in fact, in my view, Cologne is probably one of the happiest cities in Germany. Um, they party a lot. Some people might say, do people get any work done? I don't know. Maybe they do. They actually do. Um, but uh, the soccer team that I follow in Germany is based in Cologne. It's uh, 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 They're a fun, fun crowd uh, to, to hang out with. Some of my best friends are uh, uh, based in Cologne. Uh, just something about Cologne and its place, its history, um, very different food culture as well. Um, its main landmarks are the dome, the cathedral. Uh, it's one of the oldest in the world, uh, in Europe, excuse me. and. Uh, and it's also has that bridge right next to it. So when you take a picture of the cathedral and the bridge, you've got those landmarks pretty much set. Uh, when I go, they've also got great museums as well. So that's kind of a theme with me because you know, in terms of the urban setting. I should also mention too, because of these urban settings, all five cities have really great places to do street photography. So keep that in mind. Photograph people, photograph streets, photograph the street art. You've got examples of all five cities. Um, now when I go Cologne, I kind of go and hang out. I don't do actually as much sightseeing in Cologne as much as I used to. I should kind of go back and do that as, as uh, again. But when I go to Cologne, I go to Cologne and kind of relax and kind of hang out with my friends and hang out at some pubs and some bars, have some food, just, just hang out. Um, maybe do a little bit of photography with my friends, but to just kind of chill. Um, in city, it's also got a lot of money, a lot of old money. Um, they love their football, they love BMWs, uh, they, like I said, they love their beer, they like their sausage, of course it's the home of Oktoberfest, but there's some interesting things, that part, parts of, of Munich as well that uh, are worth pointing out. Um, their park spaces, you can spend all your time in the park spaces, like the English Garden, uh, in the northern part of the city. They've also got great museums as well. Um, in that area, there's a, a creek called Eisbach, and there's a, a, a standing wave that gets set up at the Eisbach Bella, and people do urban surfing. So I think it's well known. Um, it's a three foot high wave, and people in Munich go there to surf. And that standing wave is essentially just it's self propagating and it's self uh, managed 
basically because of the things that have been set up along that that creek, that wave is just constantly being gener self-generated. And so people go there to surf. So it's kind of an interesting just to go there and watch people surf as well. And keeping in mind that it, that area is surrounded by all these big museums as well. Um, being there in the summer and in the early fall, uh, outside of Oktoberfest, to go to the beer gardens is a lot of fun. So if you're in that area, I mean, you go to a beer garden no matter what, but there's something special about being in a beer garden in Munich or in the area around Munich. Go to a little town, go to a little neighborhood, find yourself a, a beer garden and just hang out and have some beer, have a pretzel, have some food, talk to other people. You'll probably see a lot of North Americans. And actually, you're talking about meeting a lot of Germans in your travel. You'll probably have met a lot of Australians in your travel. They're also everywhere as well, and so yeah, you know, chat up uh, the people that are set at the bench next to you because uh, you're going to be sharing that that bench with other people as well. Uh, Hamburg is great because it's directly associated with a naval tradition, a trading tradition. It's a big port, uh, so it's developed in that way because it's always looked out to the sea. Has, has those naval uh, seafaring traditions. So it, it views Germany and it views the rest of the world in a very different way. A lot of people emigrated from Germany and Europe from Hamburg to the New World at the time. So in the late middle to the late, um, I guess towards the beginning of the 1800s and well into the 19th century, there was a lot of emigration to Canada, to the United States, and to other parts of the world. Uh, a lot of people were fleeing their own set of circumstances as well, whether it was poverty or religious persecution, but people from Europe had emigrated, and Hamburg is one of the big ports in Europe. There are other ports, of course, but Hamburg was a, one of the big uh, uh, setting off point for a lot of people off to the new world. So there's that uh, traditional and that history as well. Uh, Berlin, Berlin is a fantastic city. People have said, and I agree with this, Berlin is not really Germany. It is Germany, but because of its unique place, its unique history, it gets so many different kinds of Germans in Berlin. It gets different kinds of people from around Europe. It gets people from all around the world. So they're very unique mix of people in Berlin makes it a very unusual city. And so when I say it's not really Germany, what I mean by that is that if you want to find, if you go to Berlin and you want to find something that's distinctly German, you have to really try to find it. It's much easier to find those aspects of local German culture in other cities as well. And I think it's relatively easy to do that in Berlin as well, but there's so much to do in Berlin that isn't very traditionally German. Um, I think where Berlin is key on is its history. Uh, it's, I mean, there's so much of it in the last 100 years alone that it'll occupy two, three, four days just on alone. If you want to go deeper, you should do that as well. You can find it. It's just much on the surface on in Berlin that is about the last 100 years that Anything else is buried a little bit deeper, and it's there for you to find. You just have to go find it as well. Um, it's an interesting experiment. I think that Berlin is a European experiment on its own, not unlike the other great cities in Europe, like Brussels or Amsterdam or Paris or London. Um, people have moved to Berlin, and there are people who have lived in Berlin for years, and they still don't speak German. And it's really interesting because uh, you're living in Germany and they're still speak German. The reason for that is because you're surrounded by expats. And the situation is that if they can get help from other expats, you've got these pockets of different expat cultures all around Berlin, and it's all self-sustaining. And it's a very unusual kind of thing, but that's Berlin. That's also what speaks to Berlin. People from other parts of Germany who, of course, have migrated to Berlin for work or what have you, and they find their own way um, uh, within Berlin very easily. So those are the urban aspects. In terms of nature, there's a lot. 
if you want mountains, you go to the Alps. There's a lot in the Alps, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, higher Alps, you can go to Austria and Switzerland, but you've got mountains that are 2,000, 3,000 meters up, and that's pretty good. Uh, in the German Alps. You can ski, you can hike, you can do all those different things. If you want forests, Germany has a lot of that too. You've got the Black Forest, the center of the country is a forest. Uh, there are these boreal forests or the northeast corner of, of the country. There are birch tree forests in the middle of the country as well. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So you've got forests, you want to hike, you want to do some canoeing, you want to spend some time in the lakes, you can do that as well. You want to be by the sea, you've got the North Sea, and you've got the Baltic Sea. So um, Germany has those coastlines as well. It has a North Sea coastline, it has a Baltic Sea coastline as well. So it has all those things from mountains to forests to sea. Uh, you can do these things. Uh, to look at and explore the natural aspects of, of Germany as well. Um, I could spend a lot more time talking about uh, sightseeing aspects. Um, if you want to ask about specific things, you should feel free to ask me offline, either by email or what have you. Um, but I could spend hour talking about it, particularly each individual city, which I, of course I won't do. Um, but uh, I hope I've given you uh, some flavor about both the urban aspect and the natural aspect to a visit to, in Germany. You, my friend, are such an amazing ambassador of the country. You know, when I'm hearing you talk, uh, you're giving me a history lesson, a cultural lesson, uh, and you're giving me kind of this big desire to return to Germany. Uh, which I didn't have before this interview started. Uh, so good on you. Uh, it almost uh, feels to Germany because, uh, uh, you know, the way you explain it, it's almost like a tour guide talking. Um, so I can definitely tell this deep passion and this deep love and this deep appreciation you've developed, um, you know, over the years of, of, German, uh, of Germany, the culture, the history, and ultimately the, the people. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I should also mention is that I've also been very fortunate to meet uh, different people along the way. And like I said, some of my best friends live in Cologne. I have friends, both expat friends and German friends throughout the country, but particularly in Berlin as well. Uh, I also love going to Berlin. And, and the funny thing is, it's, it seems odd to say, but because I have friends throughout the country, every time I go in the past, I've had to split the country in half. So that I cover one part of the country, you know, see a bunch of friends there, and then the next time I go back, I cover the other half of the country, and then I rotate them the, between the two. And sometimes I have to miss out because, you know, even, even though, you know, in terms of physical size, Germany is relatively small compared to Canada. It's still a lot to, to see. I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, Germany has 80 over 80 million people, and there's a lot of cities, a lot of uh, towns throughout the, the country, and it's easy to get around by train or, or by bus or by car uh, or by plane. Um, but because you're of all those people and all those cities in between, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a big challenge. It's a great challenge uh, on any given trip to say, where should I, who, uh, what, which particular group of friends should I visit on this particular trip? And I meet new people along the way. So um, last, this past March, with a couple uh, that I met for the first time, they're from Dortmund, and I got to have a conversation with them, completely in German, my bad German, they're great German, of course, uh, but we were able to communicate, of course, and uh, uh, over the course of the evening, I told them a little bit about myself, I asked them about, uh, about them, of course, and uh, they basically uh, uh, extended an open invitation for me to visit Dortmund 
the next time I'm in the country, I'm, I'm in the area I'm going, it's, it's like, okay, that's great. You know, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't, wasn't fishing for an invitation, but I did tell them that I, you know, I'd been in the area before. I love uh, soccer. I love football. There's a, the German football museum is in Dortmund. So it's like, I got to go there. I got to, I got to see this museum. And because Germany is the reigning World Cup champions, you know, it's also a reason why I want to go there as well. So it's all these different reasons. Um, they love the football. They're great people. I've met different examples of great people from that particular area already. So, you know, this couple was, was no different from that uh, in that respect. So I'm hoping to go to Dortmund uh, and uh, see them uh, the next time I'm in the area. So it's you know, examples like these that, that happen that I'm very open to and that uh, that uh, for. Um, and it's part of the fabric, part of the mosaic that I'm building uh, uh, for, uh, for, for my own uh, love of, of country, of love of Germany. So Henry, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, for your parents, the love for Germany. And I know you have three big loves. I mean, the, your parents, Germany, and photography. I see you on social media. We've been in a while. And you take such amazing pictures. And uh, you've thank actually you. been a photographer at several of my events. Uh, thanks for that. And also, uh, on your website, it's called uh, uh, Photo Eins, Photo Press. I know the right pronunciation. Uh, you know, uh, tell us about uh, your love for photography. Uh, where did that develop? Um, and tell us about uh, your website. Uh, and how do you pronounce it? How, what's the proper pronunciation for your website? Uh, just PhotoWines. Uh, PhotoWines Photography now, it's called, at PhotoWines.com. And because I use the word PhotoWines, I use that handle, if you will, on all of my social media on Facebook.com slash PhotoWines, same on Twitter, same on Instagram. Uh, those are the three big ones that I use, and my blog site at PhotoWines.com. Uh, I chose Explain that word what does it mean, photoines? Well, it's basically a combination of two words, photo, which is photograph, F-O-T-O, that's the word photo in German, and eins is uh, one, the number one in, in German. So I just combined those two words, it's eight letters long, it's convenient, and for me, it's a starting, again, it's a starting point for conversation um, for both my love of Germany and for my love of photography. Uh, of course, it's an unusual word, and not everybody can pronounce it, which is fine. That doesn't bother me. But I use that as a starting point, and, and uh, I think that's a valuable uh, starting point as well. And I chose that because of, as you mentioned, quite rightly mentioned, my <coughs> excuse me, my my love of photography. Oddly enough, uh, despite the fact that you know my training, my education has been in physics and in astronomy, and I spent so much time at a telescope. I actually did not develop a love of photography until relatively late. Uh, I didn't pick it up until probably 2003, 2004. Uh, I had different um, cameras uh, thanks to my dad uh, when I was a kid, but I didn't really develop it consistently or really jump into it in a big way until 2003-2004. Uh, so in terms of buying my own camera that was completely on my own, I didn't buy one until 2003-2004, which, yeah, it does sound kind of amazing, but it's like, as, as the saying goes, it's never too late to start something that you know you're going to love. So, you know, there it is. Um, and uh, I, everything has been self-taught where photography is concerned. I, read a lot, I try things out, I read stuff online, I've borrowed a ton of books, um, and everything, like I said, is self-taught. Um, and the, the funny thing is that uh, as I continued to develop my photography, that occurred around the same time at the time where my career in photography, uh, my astronomy, excuse me, was coming to an end. And so that was an interesting convergence and also being able to travel uh, for that full year with a camera until was also a very happy convergence as well at the time. So um, being able to view the world in a way that's 
relatively quiet. By that I mean is that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sometimes, sure, sometimes shoot a short video, short video in order, in order to compliment some of the photographs I'm taking. I'm not really focused on uh, video making. I know there's a lot of really talented videographers out there, video makers out there as well. And I look at their stuff and it's really humbling to, to see what kind of moving images and what kind of stories people are are making with their video. Uh, I'm a little bit old school, you know, in terms of the reading that I've done, in, the, in terms of the preferences that I have. I like the fact that when people look at an image, if they're not swiping left or right, but if they're looking at an image, if they ask themselves, what's going on in this image? A lot, that's a big plus, of course. They're halfway to, more than halfway to, to going further uh, in their understanding of what goes into making a good photograph. What's going on here? Are the people there? What's going on with the people? What's going on with the place? What's going on with the situation? Why did the photographer choose to make this photograph? Um, these are the kinds of things that are very interesting to me and have gotten me interested in how do people go into photojournalism? I don't necessarily want to become a photojournalist. It's a really tough business, obviously. But what I'm interested in, what, I, what the question I'm interested in is the following. In making still images, I want to make it the best possible. So sometimes it's about the moment. Sometimes it's about making a document. And that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of improving my own photography, the questions that I'm trying to ask is that, can I make a photograph that has a bunch of different layers? It involves people. Maybe it's about place. Maybe it's about an event. Maybe it's about a landscape. But the more that I can put into a photograph, that is what I'm trying to do. Those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to foster in my own photography. And that's the reason why I've started to look at and read about photojournalism because those are the similar kinds of questions because when photojournalists go out, they have to tell stories with the photographs, right? So when you look at the best in photojournalism, you can see immediately in the photographs the story that's taking place. And so these are the kinds of elements that I'm asking myself, what are those elements? What's going on in this picture? Um, and if I take those elements, those, those elements that go into photojournalism and I take it into travel photography, then I'm only going to improve my travel photography. If I'm gonna take those elements and go into street photography or urban photography, those, are, those facets are only going to improve uh, my street photography or my urban photography by asking those questions, by asking what kind of elements or what kind of different pieces can I put into a picture that make a better photograph. So those are the kinds of things that are now occupy my mind. And uh, uh, when and I'm perfectly happy. There's no there's no nothing wrong with making a photograph, of course. People make photographs all the time with their smartphones, which they should do. And I also am a subscriber of the notion that the best camera is the one that you have in your hand. So if you have an iPhone or a Samsung phone, whatever camera that is on your phone, take the picture. Um, I don't have a phone. I have an iPod. Sometimes I will take it with my iPod. I take almost all of my photography with a big, lunk, big, heavy camera. But that's the choice I've made. The reason I've chosen the heavy camera, and I will complain bitterly about the weight. I'm never going to stop complaining bitterly about the weight. But one of the things that I, that I know about myself is that by having a bulky camera that takes pretty good pictures, but by having a bulky camera forces me to slow down. And by forcing myself to slow down in the situation or in the event, I'm asking myself the questions that I need to ask when I'm taking a picture. Sometimes you want to dash off photograph, do that. But if I'm doing uh, photography for a theme, or maybe I want to do a story about something that I know that I'm going to have to make, 
I have to slow things down and ask myself those questions. And by having the bulky camera, the bulkiness of the camera, the weight of the camera actually forces me to slow down. And that for me is a useful thing to have. And that forces me to view my situation, the place where I'm at, uh, in a different light, a different eye, excuse me. And so that's how I approach my photography. And, and I hope that comes through a little bit in the phot photographs that I've started to make. Uh, and I hope to improve, continue to improve as well. Um, having said that, yeah, I, I hope, you know, I wish I had a smaller camera, smaller high quality camera and there are lots of different kinds of cameras as well but i kind of like with what i have right now and i've spent the money developing that system so i'm going to stick to it because i've you know i've made my bed go to sleep in it so that's where i am now so yeah you know i talked about grasping and greener on the other side yeah i could you know remove that system and, and you know throw thousands of dollars maybe and getting a, a something that's you know really good as well like a small like say Olympus, or maybe it's a Panasonic, or maybe if I you know, wanted to dream in the world, maybe a Leica, I love that Leica. But right now I have a Canon, it could be a Nikon, it could be, you know, it could be an iPod, you know, you know, it could be a phone. Do, use whatever you have. Uh, develop your own voice through your pictures. And so that's what I'm trying to do as well, through my photography as well. Uh, it's wonderful looking at seeing how people do develop their own voice uh, if that's what you're interested in doing uh, through their photographs. If you're not interested in doing that, that's fine as well. Uh, document uh, your picture, uh, your surroundings, and uh, yeah, do that. I will say, however, that because there's so much digital photography right now, um, formats change, hard disks change. You and I come from an era where we used to have those floppy disks. Even the big five and a quarters, remember those? And those three inch. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. I remember those, but now they're all gone, right? We now have portable hard disks, right? So what I'm trying to say is that the means by which we port our digital data will come and go. It's important to print them. Yeah, you know, print media will age; they go away, go away as well. But make prints. Go to Go to your drugstore in, in Vancouver. Go to London Drugs. Go to, you know, and, and make prints. Uh, uh, make books. Uh, have some kind of physical record of your photographs. Um, it doesn't have to be expensive because you can make prints at the. So in Vancouver, if you go to the London Drugs website, oh man, you can make prints. They're not very expensive at all. When you have them in your hand, you go. Those are beautiful prints because we're now at a point in technology that it's now a dime a dozen. You know, a lot of stores have, I mean, of course you're not going to have this technology at home, but a lot of stores do. So, you know, use them, make prints, um, you know, instead of uh, mailing postcards, make prints of your photographs and then mail them to your friends. Your friends will appreciate them. Guaranteed they will appreciate them because the concept of writing on the back of a print is basically a postcard, send them to your friends, your friends will appreciate that as well. So what I'm trying to say is that make some prints, make some books. I use Blurb to make, to make digital, uh, to, to make, uh, it's the digital format which I make my photo books. There are all sorts of other venues around to make these kinds of photo books. You can Google that and look for yourself, see what works for you. Um, have a record. I think it's going to be become an important thing because there's so much photography that people are making. Where are you going to store them? At some point, they're going to disappear. They're going to be deleted. Maybe you're okay with that, but I think there's a fraction of your audience that is probably not okay with that. So, my advice to you is start making prints. I'm not making. I'm not saying make making big wall prints. Do that if you want to. Just make little prints. Four-inch prints, five-inch prints, six-inch prints. There's, you've got different kinds of matting or glossiness that you can apply to those prints. Do that. Have a collection. Even if you put them into your shoebox, you will have those prints. So you know you might you know people some people not all but some people might 
you know, poo-poo the fact that there are people with, you know, lots of shoe boxes with thousands of prints. But you know what? Maybe that's not a bad thing after all. Who knows? Who knows? And, you know, I can just uh, remember back in Vancouver, BC, Canada, where we're from, uh, we've taken literally hundreds, if not thousands of pictures of our kids. And the ones I really remember the most, besides the ones on my Facebook profile or Twitter or Instagram, are the ones I printed. Uh, we have some beautiful canvases. Uh, I can remember one just now of our uh, two older kids. Uh, they actually in Stanley Park with the fall uh, colors changing uh, the leaves. Uh, and they're playing, and it's etched into my mind because of the fact it's printed. And whenever we came back to our home, uh, which you've actually visited, Henry, uh, whenever we uh, uh, returned to a condo in Burnaby, uh, we'd look at it, and it would uh, etch something into our consciousness and our subconsciousness and into our innermost being. So I'm a big advocate of printing. I know I, I, know I could definitely print more, especially now that we're on this big global trip. Uh, we're just taking digital pictures all the time, obviously. <laughs> Uh, so I, and I, we have our favorites, um, so I definitely look forward to printing them and displaying them for people to see uh, at home. Exactly, exactly. Henry, uh, you know, uh, we've covered a lot of territory on this episode, uh, everything from uh, how to take care of aging parents uh, to your big love of Germany and some great recommendations on sightseeing in Germany to, uh, you know, some great tips about photography. If people wanted to ask you questions about any three of those aspects or anything else as well, uh, how can they contact you? What is the website and social media handles uh, by which you go by? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, my website is photolines.com, F-O-T-O. E I N S, photolines.com. Um, I have, uh, you can also email me at photolines at photolines.com. So that should be easy to remember photolines at photolines.com. Um, or you can contact me on social media on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash photolines. Uh, you can contact me on Instagram, instagram.com slash photolines. And the same on Twitter, twitter.com slash photolines. So that's a great thing about having a handle that's hard to pronounce, that's pretty unique. So I can take that, that, uh, that handle and then apply it everywhere. Um, so you, you can contact me uh, on my website. You can contact me on email. You can contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And those, those, aside from my blog site and email, those three are the primary uh, social media venues that I spend the most time on. And, and I would be very happy and I would welcome uh, any and all of your inquiries about uh, the topics that we've talked about, that Ricky and I have talked about here today, uh, or any of the questions that you might have related to travel or photography. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time over there in Vancouver today, Henry. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, you your family, you. Uh, you know, visiting Germany and taking so see you soon, my friend, and uh, thanks again uh, for being on the show. Thank you very much, Ricky. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're on iTunes, make sure you leave us a rating and review. Uh, we love getting those, and we love sharing those on our show as well. And if you're watching this, uh, make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube as well. And uh, we're all over social media as well. You can follow us, Digital Nomad Mastery, and uh, our website is digitalnomadmastery.com. Uh, so we'll catch you on the next episode, and happy travels, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Digital Nomad Mastery.